0: Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys.
1: It means that we run a business in a responsible manner. That business is focused on doing social good for our customers. It's very important to us that we have good, strong, durable products. So, number one, they're durable. Number two, they, they meet the cooking needs of the, of the
0: consumer, that voice of the customer, the passion to deliver success, and that they aspire to own these. I'm very pleased to welcome Ron Bills, CEO of Envirofish, a global social enterprise that develops innovative smart cookstoves designed to reduce smoke and CO2 emissions, enable families to live healthier lives, while reducing climate change and increasing clean energy initiatives. Since the company was set up in 2003, it has grown to a global organization serving over 5 million people with over a dozen products and regional headquarters in East Africa, West Africa, Asia and Latin America. Thank you very much, Ron, for taking the time to speak today to Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you've been a social entrepreneur probably before people talked about social entrepreneurs. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. You Uh, did, yes. What is your vision? What does social business mean for you? Well, to to me, it means that we
1: run a business in a responsible manner. And uh, and, that business is focused on doing social good for our customers. And you know I remember back when I went to my first uh Skoll world forum probably about 2006 or 2007 uh and 2006 I believe and the word social entrepreneur didn't even exist uh what we d- did at Envirofit is develop the business based on the principle of uh a for profit business uh that uh, we we had to make payroll we had to take care of our customers we had to have great product that people wanted to own And we developed a business along those lines, but focused totally on energy access and clean technology
0: cooking. So in a sense, it's the mission of your, of the business. That's what gives for you this particular, the the social entrepreneurship, the fact that you have this goal to change the way poor people, I guess, in the developing world access energy. That's correct. Absolutely. Right. So where did you get this initial idea from?
1: Well, you know, we we had started Envirofit as a kind of a spinoff idea out of uh, Colorado State University, and, and and with the idea that we could t- take ideas born at the university or born within a company, and we could use modern engineering principles, modern running of a business, and and but drive that business towards doing social good. And in our case, access to energy. And, and we started the business doing two-stroke retrofit kits of dirty two-stroke engines in Southeast Asia and expanded that into clean cook stoves in about 2007. And, uh,
0: and, and that's kind of the genesis of the, of the company. Right. Uh, so what's at stake here? We talk about clean stoves. What is the scale of the problem and what does your solution offer? <laughs> Sure. Let me just set the stage for you. Uh,
1: the you know the World Health Organization estimates that for about 4.3 million people die every year as a result of breathing smoke over time. So when you think about that, it's that's a, a, a higher death than tuberculosis, AIDS, and malaria combined. So it's a huge problem in the world. And and that and, and what that's caused from is that about half the world's population had to wake up today and light a fire to cook with. So wood, charcoal, cow dung, agricultural waste. Where in, you know, in the developing world, we, we get up and you know, wonder where, whether we're going to roll into Starbucks and get a coffee or a meal or pop something into the microwave, and it doesn't work that way. And uh, in a lot of the developing world, in, in Africa, Asia, Latin America, uh, it's wood, and people are getting up to, to light a fire. So that, that, that's a huge problem across the globe. And, and uh, people cooking on dirty fires means that they're breathing smoke and their deforestation rates and climate change and things of that, that nature. So a clean cook stove, uh, such as our environment stoves, reduce the amount of indoor air pollution by over 80 percent or up to 100 percent when you have a chimney product so the uh, um it's a huge reduction in in emissions inside a home or outside and it also reduces the amount of fuel use by about 60 to 80 percent so the the deforestation the pressure on our forests uh, are are reduced
0: so a huge reductions in carbon monoxide outputs that is a tremendous problem and very exciting solution. I guess the first thing one thinks about is the uh, cost implications of that in the sense that bringing in bits of firewood and old rubbish to to burn is a pretty straightforward, low cost or zero cost option for many of the poorest people in the world who don't have money to spend on high tech or, or develop technology solutions. Did you see that as a problem at the beginning and how have you approached that?
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. That's a really good question, Virgil. And, and I, you know, the um, affordability is is always an issue. Um, you know, our, our stoves are what we may consider to be very affordable at you know thirty to forty dollars. Um, but uh, to a lot of people, uh, that's a whole lot of money. But the um, the the interesting thing is in the world where people are either gathering or gathering firewood or buying charcoal that that savings of over 60 percent can mean a lot to their lives it can mean um i'll give you an example in the charcoal world uh, a 50 just a 50 percent savings can be a huge number a lot of places of the world they spend about a dollar a day on charcoal so being able to save 50 cents a day when you know your income may be five to seven to ten dollars a day that's a huge savings you know, I I've always go out into the into the field and visit people that have had our stoves over time. And I recently visited a family in Kenya who saved, they were charcoal stove and they've had it for over a year. And the lady and the, the gentleman in the home were very excited about it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I always offer to buy it back and, if they, and how much did they pay for it? And they just loved the stove. And they told me that they were able to save enough money from the the savings in charcoal that they were able to send their youngest or their, excuse me, their oldest son to high school and it's the first and pay the high school fees. It's the first time that anybody in their family has got to go to high school. So uh, a clean technology cook stove can be a life changing event, not only from the the cleanliness and the, the health aspects, but also in the money and the time savings. For, to where instead of gathering wood, they can be spending time with their with their children or uh, productive time um, with with earning wages. So uh, the stoves, um, be, albeit you know, thirty to forty dollars uh, on the average stove. Um, there's also areas where uh, micro lending comes into effect. So people that can't afford that thirty forty dollars cash outlay immediately have the opportunity to, to purchase a stove uh, on installments through a microfinance organization or, or a bank uh, where they do microloans. So there, there's always an avenue for availability of purchase uh, uh,
0: for various individuals and demographics. Right, right. So what kind of proportion of your sales would be supported by debt of one kind or another?
1: You know, I would guess that's a good question. I'd guess probably around 50% uh, would would be a product that goes through uh, some type of a loan mechanism to
0: individuals. Right, right. So that means that 50% are actually able to put together the money to buy a stove in these conditions, which which is quite impressive because, you know, there are all kinds of challenges about savings, I know, and, and just putting together those kinds of sums of money.
1: Sure, you bet it is. And, uh, you know, type of a layaway type programs are popular as well as uh, as people just saving uh, until they do have the money. Um, There's also self-help groups and women's groups that rotate their purchases between members. And so there's there's various uh, very unique uh, methods for uh, for uh, purchasing products like like ours.
0: That's great. It's great. I know that uh, micro uh, microfinance has had some highs and some lows, and there are in some situations it hasn't always worked out. How has that worked out for you in terms of the lending side of your operations? Are people keeping up to date in payments, and is that all working?
1: Uh, yeah, you know, we we partner with various MFI organizations. Generally, you know, strong, good quality. Reputable MFIs that uh, work with the within the communities, and I've never heard of any uh, struggles on repayments.
0: Uh, people have always been very uh, very conscientious of the of their debt. Great. Tell me a little bit about how you approach marketing this in rural environments, in very different environments from the ones which were you know accustomed to to urban, industrial, and so forth. Sure. You know
1: it varies a little bit depending upon. You know, different geographies in the world. I mean, we have operations in India, East Africa, West Africa, Mexico, uh, Central America and South America. So uh, it, it's a little bit different, but, but the, uh, the basics are that uh, it's, it, it's got to be um, people have to have awareness and they have to have trust and belief in the product. So the, the strongest marketing is word of mouth. And, uh, you know, within these regions, I mean, Firefit has about 500 employees and 490 of those are dispersed within across the geographies where we work. Only to, only about, we have about 12 people in the United States and, and the rest are in those geographies I mentioned, India, East Africa, West Africa, Mexico, Central America, Latin America. So those people on the ground, you know, are, are the, the local people and they're, they're uh, uh, doing direct marketing sales where they're doing demonstrations at festival seasons or in various markets or we're working with distribution partners and and training them through our online and bioFi University on about the products and how they work and uh, we have some local language flyers and flyers are a big avenue for reaching people and and where they take that flyer home and look at it and they've seen a demo and then they, they save their money or contact their dealer or distributor or, or us to to purchase a product sometimes it's even even radio and television advertisements in yes. in,
0: in local communities Great. you make it sound like a smoothly operating uh, and i'm sure it is <laughs> machine and you've been you know you've been at this for quite a while there must be been considerable challenges on the way to you know building up this network and developing these specific Sales techniques, which you know now know work. Can you talk a little bit about when you set out at the beginning, and when you, you know, how did you think about and your initial attempts at marketing, and maybe some of the lessons on this journey?
1: Yeah, that's a, some good questions there too. I, I think, you know, it always hasn't. It it isn't easy, and it's not perfect. And one of the, you know, I guess the biggest lessons learned is uh, from us is that if it doesn't work, try something else, and keep working it but the the main issue was around really understanding the voice of the customer and uh, we are extremely passionate about our customer and our business and uh, we even operate a customer care operations with each within each one of our our business units and that's basically a call center and we're following up with every customer to assure the uh, uh, customer satisfaction and any questions on usage. And, uh, you know, within the, the world, uh, cell phone penetration is growing and growing. So most people, it becomes easier and easier to be able to converse. But, it, you know, I, I guess the basic lesson of, you know, you may think it's a great product and it works great in the lab and, and, and you like it. But the real answer is whether the people that are using it like it. And we've spent a lot of time in the field, a lot of time working with uh, with focus groups and teams in the field to really develop product that people have a passion to own. And that's probably the biggest takeaway that 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 I have is I see a lot of products that come into the developing world that people think are great, but but. The users just don't like it or they don't work or it doesn't cook the, you know it doesn't cook the right meals or doesn't do the food properly so truly understanding your customer is probably the biggest lesson learned that we've we've had over the last decade
0: that's fascinating sounds like very good advice now you talked about this initially being developed as a spin out at the university how has the technology developed since then because as you say this was an idea presumably developed in isolation, maybe a technology breakthrough, and you've emphasized now the closeness that you have with consumers and users. Can you talk a little bit about how the technology's changed over the time?
1: When we originally started in India with, uh, with a product, we didn't even know how we were going to make the combustion chamber, because most of the stoves were had a ceramic, you know, a clay-fired combustion, and that really isn't scalable on a mass production. And so we really developed this technology over a, a long period of time, and uh, developed a combustion chamber and some proprietary alloys that enabled us uh, to superheat these gases and clean um, uh, emissions, and and evolved the models. You know, the, So, you know, BioFit doesn't have just one stove, we have a whole line of stoves from um, individual household wood stoves or individual household charcoal stoves, a couple different models each within those categories, and then we have commercial products for feeding, you know, 300 children in a school a day, and in uh, a very clean um, uh, institutional stove that uh, a 100 liter pot that could feed 300 children for meals, and save 80 percent in fuel, so which is a big savings to schools and then we have a plancha stove in latin america for where the traditional cooking is with uh, you know tortilla based type cooking and has removable pot rings to sink a pot so what we've done is is taken the basics around uh, a passion of developing the cleanest burning biomass stoves available to man and developing that technology into packages that people want to and aspire to own that, that produce the, the normal
0: type cooking that they're used to and, uh, and the type of foods that they cook. That's great. That's great. Now, you talk about this being technologically advanced. That's terribly important. But I wonder, as far as your, the end user is concerned, and this may sound like a naive question, but you know, in a sense, I won't say anything's better than the, what they, they have at the moment. But there are, I guess, multiple different uh, possibilities that are better than they they have at the moment. How important is it that your technology is the best?
1: Well, you know, I I think it's very very important to us that we have, uh, you know, good, strong, durable products. So, number one, they're durable. Number two, they they meet the cooking needs of the of the consumer, that voice of the customer, the passion to deliver success, and that they're that they're um, they aspire to own these. And then it's then it, then we look at it as a cooking as a ladder, right? right? You have wood, you have charcoal, and in some cases there's also opportunities for LPG, where people if they can afford LPG, and that's that's like a propane tank for your barbecue grill. So the, the LPG tanks were, are uh, are somewhat available in certain parts of the world, and and we're also have a program. We have some LPG stoves, and we also have a program to expand our uh, LPG penetration. But but that's that's getting into where you know people are having to pay for on a regular basis the you know cooking fuel, and like they do in charcoal. So. Um, helping to expand the LPG market is also one of our goals as we look at this as an energy ladder.
0: Great. That's great. And you talk a little bit about financing and how that's been for you and maybe some of the lessons. I mean, you talked about the time it took in a way to, to develop the technology and to understand the best way to develop it and so forth. How long was it before you had revenues? How did you finance the whole thing?
1: You know, Envirofit. We started out as a nonprofit organization when we were doing two-stroke engine retrofits.
0: and in retrospect,
1: that was probably the wrong business model to approach because the the as a nonprofit, you're you're uh, kind of taxed with um, the difficulties of raising money, and it all has to be donor based, Whereas our business model was more around a social enterprise. So we we uh, converted from a nonprofit to a for-profit enterprise to be able to enable us to be able to take on debt. Which as a nonprofit, it's very difficult to do. So uh, as a for-profit business, but then we have to to show that the business makes sense. That we have a that we run a good P and L. We've got a strong balance sheet. That we really have customers that are paying. And so uh, the, with the growth of Envirofit, it's been a, a blend of initially some grant funding to help support getting the business moving in the right trajectory and develop the, the truly the segment that didn't exist in the world and clean technology cooking. And then um, as we evolve the business, uh, and we'll do close to probably about $30 million in revenue this year, and as we grow that business, then the needs for working capital come into effect for us to... From the time we buy raw materials to the time we deliver finished goods, there's a cash need there. And then once those finished goods are sold, then we receive revenue. So there, and so we were able to obtain a, a, a business loan of about four million dollars recently that was enables us to to help. Uh, gr- manage that working capital, and we were also able to raise some equity within the business to strengthen our balance sheet, which is what you know a a bank or a reputable lender would would look for in in a business. It's the business has to make sense, and then we have to be able to repay the money and and manage the business in a
0: in a proper manner. That sounds great. That sounds great. I guess the early days are the the most difficult. I mean, you mentioned grant finance. Did that get you to a stage where you were making reasonable revenues, or did you need to look at other uh, avenues?
1: um No, that got that got us to you know to the stage where we're making decent revenues. Now the difference between revenues and profits are, are where the, <laughs> where the, the issues can lie, and some of it is driven you know self driven within the business is what are your aspirations to grow. You know, with Envirofit we have we you know we have a broad geography i mean we're in east africa and all those countries you know kenya tanzania rwanda ethiopia uh mozambique uh uganda and then in west africa we have the francophone countries plus you know nigeria and, and ghana which we have manufacturing bases in and then you get to central america so we're in in mexico and peru so we have a, a a broad geography, so we have a, a lot of investment growth. So as we grow within a geography, it takes some time to get the revenues and the operations up and running, but, uh, that's where we're at today is, uh, with those embedded operations. So, um, we're very
0: proud of it. That sounds great. Can you talk a little bit about scaling? Because clearly, that's been something you've been thinking about from the beginning, I'm presuming from some of the things you've said. Can you talk about how you thought about scaling at the beginning and how important it has been and some of the decisions that you have made as a result of that or looking at, at through that lens?
1: You know, you think about scale in, in the clean cookstoves business and population growth. So you look at you know population growth and scale. So a small operations within one country or one village, or it may be an, an interesting idea and be very helpful for that, you know, the local geography, but in the true sense of um, deforestation, climate change, uh, you know, carbon monoxide reductions, uh, health impacts, that's pretty small numbers. And, you know, you can get to the point where the, your population growth would outrun your scaling effects so what what we look at is building a business on a foundation that can truly scale and make an impact in the clean technology world clean technology cookstove world and so we set this up to be able to you know manufacture at scale and to be able and, and that's not running the business on a back of a you know on a back of a napkin or on an excel spreadsheet that's proper business systems like uh, we use NetSuite as a business enterprise system within a co- our company, and, and really developing the ability for the, for the business to scale, and then scaling it. Uh, and that's where you'll get the lowest cost,
0: the highest quality, the best best people, best products that's great that's great now we talk about scaling it seems on one uh, level i guess pretty straightforward but i'm just wondering how difficult are the decisions that you need to make at the beginning to get scaling right i mean were there some decisions some options which were really important at the early stages that you Mm. you know that you, Mm. you did things in a way that maybe another organization might not if it was not so focused on scaling
1: yeah that's uh, that's a good point. I mean, uh, you know when you're when you really you begin the business and you look at it, you have to you have to decide where you really want this business to be in the next five years and the next ten years because a lot of those decisions along the way, you know how you manage finances, how you build a balance sheet, how you run your p and l, um, the business decisions around enterprise software. Um, manufacturing decisions of where am I, where am I building, where am I buying? Uh, you know, how do I globally source the, lo- the highest quality, lowest costs? Um, you know, raw materials. Those decisions are very important because it's, it's a lot different if you're trying to run just a small business. Uh, you know, making, yeah, making a small scale impact in a local community. Versus saying, I want to have a global business
0: that can make an impact to the world. A lot of decisions there. Are there one or two that you look back on that you think that were really crucial? Well, I think uh, going back to that, you know, how do I originally
1: form the business? Is, a, is it a nonprofit, a for-profit? Uh, you know, what is the, What's the business basis so you can grow? And uh, how do you take on debt? How do you responsibly grow your balance sheet and manage your, your P&L and your debt uh, equity ratios? Um, there's a lot of, uh, of small decisions along the route that, um, that need to be made. Because Otherwise, the, to scale a business that hasn't thought about it, um, you might not have the right people in place. You might not have the right business systems or the right banking relationships or the right business acumen to really, really grow and scale a business beyond a, a individual community.
0: I mean you talk about managing your balance sheet and taking on debt what kinds of things come into play there well um you know the basics of
1: before you know it's just like if uh, any individual goes down to a bank to borrow money there has to be credit worthiness of the individual so as a business that's the way banks look at it as well you know what is your proven track record are you responsibly managing your your human resources do you have the potential for growth do you have a track record that uh, That shows that you're you're making money and able to deliver products on time. Uh, You know, a lot of uh, a lot of places in the world, it's uh, it's about truly delivering your product and delivering what you say. Um, How do you deliver? You know, ten thousand of something a month versus ten thousand of something a year. It's, there's a big difference in the, in the way the business is set
0: up. I guess execution counts a lot there. Yeah. And that, that can yeah. be something, something that's quite difficult to. Executions, you know, everything, I guess, in, in business. But in a mainstream, conventional profit-making, you know, Western business where they have the infrastructure and everything's in place, it's a less significant hurdle than if you're working in you know, Africa with poor infrastructure, no communication or poor communication and other things. How have you approached that?
1: getting the right people in the right seats of the bus and you know we haven't just using since you've mentioned africa east africa we've got a gentleman that runs east africa operations david small and uh, david uh, spent many years in colgate he's zimbabwean by by birth lives in nairobi runs east africa and he's a master at at uh, uh you know leading a team and growing a team and growing an organization and and has a, the same passion that we all do around around growing and managing the business. So, you know, it's really about getting the right people on the team and, and focusing in the local market areas. Uh, you know, somebody that lives somewhere else coming in to tell other people how to, that doesn't work. Uh, what works is having people that understand the the local community and the the difficulties and the and the challenges and the opportunities to really develop the business and with uh, with the backbone of some really great product and some really great engineering and manufacturing behind it
0: to to grow it. Great, it's a great story, Ron, and a great success. Have there been a couple of moments where you wondered whether it was all going to work? I mean, what's been the most difficult moment for you? <laughs>
1: You know, I I, um, I don't think I ever had a moment where I wondered if it was work. It was, uh, you know, I'm not the most patient guy in the world, so sometimes I just wanted more results faster. But I always had a belief in the, in the team and the people. And every time I look in one of our customers' eyes and I hear the story, it just recharges my batteries fully.
0: Finally, I guess just looking to the future, what is your vision? Over what time frame are you looking and what do you want to achieve? i'd like to see us
1: uh, you know quadruple our business uh, with within the next five years and and i think that we can do that very responsibly as we as we bring on our full operations in the countries i've mentioned and then also we as we look to the growth of the lpg and how we play a role in
0: in delivering lpg to that last mile distribution great and any advice for other ambitious social entrepreneurs that want to take on a big problem and make a big difference.
1: Make smart decisions and never give up.
0: Good, uh, but uh, I guess challenging advice too. Thank you so much, Ron, for taking the time today and sharing your adventure, your lessons, and your experience, and I wish you the very best of success.
1: Thank you very much, Virgil, appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.